Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Bird. Uh, Dr. Bird is the academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he's literally written the book on evangelical theology, and I have him here today to talk about uh, a different book, actually, uh, The New Testament and Its World, which was co-authored with N.T. Wright and releases middle of November. Uh, Dr. Bird, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. So let's uh, let's start with this. This is this is an ambitious project. I mean, it, this is a book that is daunting to look at, let alone read. So uh, I can't imagine the time that went into putting it all together. So just begin by telling us how this project came into being and how you got involved with Tom Wright. Uh, well, uh, not so quite a long story. Uh, about. Ten years ago, I was sitting in a bar with uh, my SPCK e editor, uh, Philip Law, and we were talking about, you know, maybe some possible things I could write for them. And I said, to be honest, I don't really have much going on at the moment uh, in terms of what I can write for you. But I said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an idea for free. You should get someone to team up with Tom Wright and to take his, you know, life's work and translate it into a single one volume uh, book in the genre of a New Testament introduction. And uh, Philip looks look at me as if as if he just had an epiphany and said, oh, that is a wonderful idea. Yes, we should do that. And he said, hey, why don't you do it? Say, so, well, you know, I've met Tom a few times at you know, conferences, and yeah, some I'm a bit, a bit of a fanboy. But look, he may he may have his own, you know, his own minion uh, who he wants to do it. And uh, well, he he shared the idea with Tom, and Tom said, "Oh yeah, that Mike Bird seems like a seems like a nice boy for an Australian." And uh, and uh, eventually we arranged a meeting, and we we then then agreed that we would uh, we would do such a thing. I, I'd principally rework the Wrightonian corpus. Um, uh, summarize, augment, uh, adapt, and turn into a New Testament introduction. Then Tom would go through it and, and do a whole bunch of revisions. Around the same time, Zondervan came on board as a co-publisher, and then it became bigger than Ben Hur. Uh, it went from being a little black and white book to being all color uh, and everything. Uh, we end up filming two different DVD series to go with the book, including uh, a DVD lecture series, like at a semi level sort of a thing on the New Testament in its world, and part of that is filmed on location in Israel and, and Greece and Rome. And uh, we've been basically working on this for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So they basically, they just gave you a stack of, of N.T. Wright books, and they're like, just someone needs to go make sense of this, it's got to be you. And that was, that was your job. Uh, yeah, effectively, I went through the. Uh, I mean, they, thankfully, it wasn't just all um, paperback. They gave me the uh, the electronic copies, uh -huh. which made life a lot easier. So, and, but it, it wasn't just a cut and paste. It wasn't just kind of okay. Let's trim that and put it here and mix that around. Uh, it was it was more of a revisioning and an ad adaptation of some of Wright's work, and also a lot of fresh writing by both myself and by Tom. So this this isn't just the greatest hits. Uh, this is also some really freshly reworked materials, and in fact, Tom's written some very good stuff for the, uh, particularly for the opening, as well as for the uh, closing section of the book. Uh, and it was also quite fun. I wrote my chapter on Romans, you know, working with Wright, then Tom just basically rewrote everything over it, and I had to concede what he wrote was far much better than what I wrote the first time around. 
So it was there's a few sort of fun things like that going on in the in the composition process. But it's a book that we hope will uh, be very good for the seminary classroom. But I hope, we hope it also benefits uh, other people as well. Just you know, in the churches or you know anyone who just wants a real um, fresh, uh, innovative and and fun and thoughtful introduction to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that struck me is that the the book. I mean, it was. I, I think that I would categorize it as. You know, it, it, it's it, it's still accessible to the to the layperson. It's not simple by any means. Uh, it's it's it is kind of daunting. It's a very large book, um, but it's not the the way in which it's uh, put together with the writing style and the visuals, and I think particularly mm. the all the video components that you that you've created to go along with it, um, mm. kind of really does bring it out of that that sort of era of dry, dusty academia. And it, it's going to challenge, I think, I think it's going to challenge lay people to be like, okay, it, you know, can I, can I do this? It, it, you know, it's not quite the basic introduction introduction. It's not a lay person's commentary, but it is a good step up for someone who wants more than that. Uh, but maybe, you know, isn't going to like launch into something that has a bunch of Greek and Greek and or Hebrew in it uh, either. So you see the primary audience being sort of under maybe undergraduate seminary students. How do you think this would be used in, in churches? Well, I think you could use it for an uh, adult Sunday school class for sure. You could uh, even what, what you could even do is use the DVDs in like a home Bible study. And then for those who want to go a little bit deeper, they could certainly refer to the, the textbook. Uh, but th- this, this is a book where we really want to get people thinking historically, looking at the world behind the text. Because when you understand a bit of background, that's like the difference between uh, black and white and seeing in color or from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. So there, there, there's a big emphasis on historical background. But we don't leave it there. We are also concerned with the world uh, in front of the text, which is our world, uh, the position and the disposition of readers as they're trying to make sense of the New Testament for themselves. And that's why we put considerable effort into you know, ending most chapters with a very simple question, you know, so what? How is this going to affect the way you eat your wheat bix uh, tomorrow morning, the, the, what you do at church, uh, your ethics, your, your pastoring, your teaching, your, your, your living for Christ? Uh, what's the outcome of that? So every chapter is, is designed to not simply fill your head with knowledge about a whole bunch of uh, things in the ancient world, but to hopefully change the way you read the New Testament and also to show you what the kind of spiritual, missional, and, 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 and practical bang for buck you get from appropriating the New Testament for yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, you're, you're going to run into people that say, oh, it's just the Bible. You just read it. It's God's word. You don't need anything else. Just the Bible and open it up and read it and God speaks to you. What do you, what do you say to comments like that um, in regards to what, what good does all this supplemental material, understanding the context, how does that change uh, how you interpret and understand scripture well i tell them the story of a wonderful young presbyterian lady i met once who told me that she went to a church uh, that she was visiting wasn't her normal church she was just in town visiting and the preacher got off by saying you know i haven't been to seminary but i've been to calvary you know when i prepared this sermon i didn't consult any commentary or any book I just focus on the word, I pray myself up, and I be led by the Spirit. 
and he then delivered what she regarded as a fairly mediocre sermon. Hmm. At the end of the service, when the preacher was standing at the, the back greeting everyone as they, as they were leaving the building, uh, the preacher said, so what did you think of the sermon? And the young Presbyterian lady said, well, quite frankly, I wasn't listening. And he said, why not? And she said, well, why should I listen to you? You don't listen to anybody else. So what's the point of listening to, to, to be taught by someone who themselves does not think they need to be taught? Uh, the reality is that we all need a Philip to run beside our chariot and to help us understand Scripture. Protestants believe in the clarity of Scripture, but if you look at the confessional heritage of the church and the Protestant confessions, the clarity of Scripture only pertains to the things necessary for salvation. That's what the Westminster and the London Baptist uh, Confessions say. So, yes, Scripture is very clear on how to have a redemptive relationship with Christ, but beyond that, we do need to do a little bit of work. We need to listen to our teachers. We need to listen to our traditions and to help us wrestle with Scripture on a deep and profound level. And what I also tell people, if you want to be led by the Spirit in your biblical interpretation, that's fine. That's fantastic. But by doing some study, you actually give the Holy Spirit more to work with. So uh, being spiritual and being learned are certainly not opposites. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. I think that it's, you know, I, I can tell you that for myself, uh, just coming from a pastoral context, um, you know, I, I I try very hard to, you know, when I'm crafting a message, I want to know that other people have said the same, you know, not word for word the same thing that I'm going to say, but definitely that the that I have the, the background uh, so that when someone asks me a question, you know, I can say, well, here's a person that, that is a specialist in this area, and you know, here's where I learned that from, and here's where I learned this from. So you kind of stand on the shoulders of you know ac- ac- academic contemporaries, of those throughout church history, and if you are the first person to have an idea, and you're the only person that's professing a certain interpretation of scripture, uh, then I don't think the spirit that you're listening to is the Holy Spirit because, you know, he's been speaking and talking to these people for hundreds and thousands of years as well. And, you know, I think part of the context of the New Testament is, you know, it's 2000 years old. And so you're looking at not just the context of the history and the culture of the time, uh, but also how has that been interpreted down through the ages and how has the Holy Spirit already spoken to people in regards to looking at and interpreting this? And to know that you know, you're not in a vacuum uh, when it comes to New Testament interpretation. You're not the first person to read this book. Yes, yep, exactly. I think, that, I think that's so right. You can end up with a, what I would call a, a hermeneutical solipsism, mm-hmm. where basically my interpretive mind is the only one that exists. Uh, which which can be fermented in, in certain um, uh, traditions that, that that tend to emphasize the, uh, the 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 right and value of individual interpretation. Now everyone's free to interpret the Bible how they like, but we tend to do interpretation within the canopy of the Catholic tradition. Now I, I don't mean by that Roman Catholic, but I mean the great tradition of the Church, uh, which is which is a broad ages. Now certainly, uh, as some of the Puritans I think said, you know God has new light to shed upon His Word. 
And even Vincent Lorenz talked about, you know, the improvement of our religion. Uh, but that's always going to be something organic. I mean, if you if you're reading the Bible and you suddenly come to the view that there's four people in the Trinity or the son is the father's own little mini me or something like that, or he's kind of like one of the minions from um uh, despicable me or, or something like that uh that then you, you may be going as uh, as as the old uh, world war ii movie said you may have gone a bridge too far <laughs> away from that great tradition mm-hmm. so can you give me some examples of uh literary or historical context sort of changing or deepening the way in which we view the text Oh, I think there's probably another example come to mind. I I think it helps if you know things like James and 1 Peter are the genre of a diaspora letter. So they're written from basically a kind of home base, usually in in Palestine, uh, but they're not written to, you know, um, exiles or those part of the Jewish dispersion. I think that helps. Uh, Also understanding, I mean, a good one, of course, is understanding the, the nature of an apocalypse. You know, what what is apocalyptic literature? Uh, once you have a little bit of an insight into that, I think it really helps. I'll never forget D.A. Carson um, once saying that if he was going to preach on the book of Revelation, the first thing he would do would be to write to read 500 pages of apocalyptic literature to help him get into the, the thought background uh, of the world. So if you, if you know a little bit about that, that means you're not going to uh, treat it uh, in a way that was uh, – different from what the author was actually intending and the type of impact he wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that we've been going through in my in my Sunday school class with my high schoolers, we've been going through um, just a series on how to read scripture. And we've been talking about this yeah. idea of genre. And um, we're talking about apocalyptic genre. And I'm like, okay, I just want to, you know, to read, show you guys these verses from Revelation and... Um, and we're going to show you some popular interpretations. Then you tell me what you think. And uh, you know, it's the, the uh, locust in Revelation, um, and there are three or four, so I think, especially from dispensationalism. They're like, oh, these are these are helicopters, and they're talking about you know oh, yes. war. And I'm like, just okay. Now, without any you know other knowledge of this, you know, how do you think this connection is made? And you know, it was amazing. You know, the, the, you know, these are the high school kids, very smart. Uh, but still high school kids, th- that immediately are like, well, there's no way the original author could have had any intention of this yeah. particular meaning. And I'm like, so what does that tell you about the interpretation? And they're like, well, yeah. y- you know, we can't say for sure that it's not the correct interpretation, but it definitely doesn't lend itself to being the strongest one. I'm like, you know, yeah. there, you know th- there you go. That's, and, you know, but people, people do that. People look at the people tend to look at scripture uh you know with their modern context and overlay yeah, that and, yeah exactly so, right yeah yeah and that's 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 both a strength and a weakness because we all read scripture in light of our own experience mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to remember that our experience is not that of the uh, original author the original readers or the the history of the readers uh, over the ages and we want to as much as we want to appropriate the world for today we have to remember that the bible is for us but it wasn't written about us mm. uh, if, mm, if you if you can grasp you know the bible is for us but it's not about us uh, except in a, a general sense that, that we're all part of the church of christ uh, once you understand that it frees you up or, or prevents you from making a lot of serious errors mm. Mm. yeah 
Uh, it's almost like I think we could, we tend the tendency to go backward, and we're like, okay, we have our context, we read it, we go backward, and we try to then overlay our culture onto the ancient culture instead of starting the other way around and learning about the ancient culture and then trying to overlay then what you know obviously the our culture is different but you know what did it mean to the reader at that time and then we can move forward and determine what are the applications that still you know hold valid there's the core theological truth same to both and mm -hmm. what still is valid applicationally you know for today so there's a lot of people it's like you know, this is a 2000 year old book um you know even even older if you go back into the old testament how how can something written so long ago to a people that's so different than us to a time to a culture to a situation so different than what we have today how can that still be relevant to the 21st century and that's a very good question. I think one of the, the best things that the New Testament does is it gives us a vision of community where we're not surrounded by people who are completely the same as us. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, Jesus's vision of the church where, you know, in John's gospel, he talks about, you know, he has other sheep who must be brought into the fold. You've got the commission to all nations. Paul says in Christ, there's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, but all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, Christians should be supporting a very strong, um, uh, multicultural ethnic the, the the belief that we uh, what we are in Christ what we, you know the 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 unity between us is far stronger than anything that might divide us mm -hmm. so certainly within the body of Christ we should be fighting for a very uh um, inclusive ethnic and it's uh, it's very sad that I know this is true in America that that you know 11 a.m. Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week mm -hmm. and that should fill us all with a certain amount of grief now at the same time not just internally but externally you know how do we relate to outsiders what does it mean to love your neighbor you know whether that's your Trump voting Republican neighbor your Democrat neighbor your your gay neighbor your neighbor who is a you know, uh, a nun, and that's N-O-N-E, with, with no religion. I mean, this is where I think the Saint Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount really shows you how to do that. But also Paul, in Romans 12, not the most popular part of Romans uh, in, in most people's imagination, but Romans 12 has got a lot of great advice about how to live at peace with people outside the Christian community. So I think there's a whole bunch of ways in which the New Testament is relevant, and also it's relevant today. I mean, how do we live under the lordship of uh, Jesus, uh, whether that's in a Christian country, a, a post-Christian country? There's a whole bunch of challenges, and we can look to the Apostle Paul, the Apostles Peter, the very words and life of Jesus, for patterns and paradigms that we need to uh, adopt. So ultimately... We can all, you know, follow Jesus in our own way, you know, according to his stories, his symbols, the way of life that he calls us to. Mm -hmm. One of the assertions in the book um, is that the gospel message that was announced by Jesus, uh, the early followers of Jesus, is not always the same as the gospel message that gets proclaimed today. And I think, um, can you just explain what you mean when you when you say that? If I've gotten that okay. Yeah, I think a lot of the gospel preaching uh, that you, not always, but you can hear, tends to be very individualistic, mm -hmm. very transactional. 
uh, and and also to, to a large degree of uh, being platonic. It's all about how my sinful soul can one day escape to the afterlife in some sort of heavenly and blissful state. Uh, but the gospel is uh, an announcement that God's kingdom has come in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And by repenting of our sins and by putting faith in him, we thereby participate in that very kingdom. Now, articulating the gospel that way is probably a little bit different to what you might find in some things like uh, some you know, four spiritual laws or or sort of analogous things. Now, those spiritual laws are not inherently bad. They're saying things that are true, but the gospel is never posed in those categories. I mean, I always get my students to read through some very important texts like Romans 1, uh, verses 2 to 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, 2 Timothy 2, 8. And I say, well, have a look at those passages and, and what are the main consistent elements in these um short summaries of the gospel. I mean, when Paul basically tweets the gospel, what are the main th themes that, that that seem to be recurrent? And we go through them and we unpack them and, and the same things do come out. You know, the the identity of Jesus, that he's, he's not just the Savior, but he's Lord and he's also Messiah, which means Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. I mean, most gospel summaries jump from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1. Mm -hmm. And for all that matters, Jesus could have been born in Narnia. Uh, it doesn't really matter what he did as long, long as he had a sinless birth and a sin-bearing death the entire history of israel and ministry of jesus doesn't really uh, matter at all and yet the the, the 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 books we call gospels actually do contain the gospel the story of his life the story of his ministry the story of his uh message if you like so uh there's, there's important stuff there we'll miss out if we're not paying attention to uh, I think this this kind of dovetails my next question does with what you just said, because on the back of the book, or at least the the, co the sampler copy that I received, there, there's a list of questions that the book addresses, and I suppose I probably just could have thrown my interview prep out the window and just gone through the list and asked those questions, uh, but the one that stood out to me, because anytime a book is telling you that it answers a question, it's because the book thinks it answers that question in a in a unique or powerful way. And the, mm. the question that got me was, what is the real meaning of the resurrection in its original context? Because out of all the things in Christianity, the one thing that Christians think they understand is death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's the biggest celebration, you know, well, maybe the second biggest celebration to Christmas in terms of how we celebrate it, but definitely from a religious perspective, yeah. the biggest celebration. Um, mm. So you're going to tell me that the real meaning of the resurrection is different than how it's viewed today. Well, you, you can make a you can you can make a funny contrast between sort of different churches. I mean, uh, I often use an uh, an analogy. I compare a kind of liberal interpretation of the resurrection, where it's just all metaphor for social liberation and and uh, that sort of thing. And then you get your uh, average sort of you know low church evangelical. It's just the proof of life after. I mean, redemption happens on Good Friday. Uh, right. Easter Sunday, the resurrection, just the proof of it or proof of life after death. Uh, but what we're presented with in the New Testament uh, is, is, is the belief that in Christ, uh, the Messiah has been handed over for our sins. He's borne our condemnation. But at the same time, his, re his resurrection is his vindication. And when we have union with the Messiah through the Spirit, we participate in his vindication or in his, dare I say, in his justification. 
justification. In other words, the resurrection is what vindicates Jesus. It justifies Jesus. He's not a messianic pretender. He's not a false prophet. He is the son of God. He's designated the son of God in power by being raised from the dead. And when we have union with him, we participate in his justification. You know, uh, that is a very different way of packaging how we think about our justification, our being in the right with God, based not only on the cross, but also on the resurrection. The other thing to say is it strongly means that the new age has to be has begun. And this is where, where Tom is fantastic. He points out that most Jews believe the resurrection was going to happen corporately to all of Israel at the end of history. You know, think of John 11, you know, where Jesus says to uh I think it's Martha, um, you know, your son will ri- your uh, son, your brother Lazarus will, will rise again. And she says, yes, I know he will rise and the resurrection at the last day. Well, when Jesus is raised, it, it creates quite a conundrum because instead of raising all Israel at the end of history, God has raised one man in the middle of history, which means that future age, the eschaton, has in- invaded the present. And it means we are living, as we often like to say, between the now and the not yet so i would say the meaning of resurrection it's bound up with our salvation it's not merely the after dinner mince of good friday our salvation is bound up with the resurrection and it also means there's the launching of the new age and that's why we are to use lucan uh, idiom that's why we can call ourselves children of the resurrection Mm -hmm. i think that viewpoint really changes the way that a lot of christians if they understood it would have to face their own Christianity because there's very much, uh, I, I can't speak to, to Australia, but I'll speak to the United States. There's very much a sense within evangelical Christianity of, okay, we'll, we'll get them in, we'll get them saved, and then they just kind of, we store them in the churches until they die. And then mm. that's salvation, you know, that we'll just, we'll just, we'll just get them in and we don't, and I think that's why there's, there's a lack of discipleship within the church because there's not a, firm idea or conviction that this is the kingdom here that we are we are part of that kingdom age right now it's all about the future it's all about after you die after you die after you die and so a lot of christians are left just going well what do i do now and you know we we see glimmers of it okay we know that you're supposed to follow christ so we'll do but a little bit of that but we never it's very hard i think for christians to connect that to like no the, the kingdom has been brought to earth now we're in that already but not yet um i i really feel like the believers understood that better it would change how they live and it wouldn't just be like we're waiting on a hope for the future but we've begun to receive that hope even even now today in our everyday lives yeah i think that's exactly i think what christians need to be taught is you know uh, it's you enter through the door that says salvation now you're just in a waiting room mm-hmm. getting ready for eternity uh, I, I think a much better uh, metaphor is for us to use uh, the ones Paul used or the ones we find in New Testament, the, the language of being, you know, fellow soldiers or, or dare I say that of being pilgrims. Uh, I, I really think we need to recapture this language of pilgrimage or being on a journey. I mean, that's what, you know, John Bunyan's, you know, great, uh, great book was, you know, all, all about, you know, uh, the, the, uh, you know, uh, the, the progress of the Christian life, the struggles along the way. And that's why instead of talking about, be, um, are you saved? It's about, you know, it's about, I'm saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. 
all three tenses are there. And there is a sense, although we, it might be a little bit too much to say that we build the kingdom with our own efforts, we certainly do build for the kingdom. And the things that we do uh, will will certainly, I think, echo in the new creation. I mean, that's how Paul finishes 1 Corinthians, 1 chapter 15. He doesn't say, okay, Christ is risen, so sit back, kick off your shoes, and wait for God to annihilate your enemies and um, kind of, you know, teleport you all to heaven a la Star Trek. He says, no, Christ has been raised, so you can get busy knowing the things that you do will echo in eternity. That is a very different way of giving a story of discipleship. Telling people what they do now actually will matter uh, in the in, in this age and in the age to come. I want to get back to just the the content of the book for a second, how you were writing it. You're going through all this material. Um, you're writing your own. Tom Wright's writing his own. You're working off of all the books that he's written. Um, so much material there, and you're 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 forcing. You're not forcing. Forcing is the wrong word. You're putting all this together. You're making it fit. You're figuring out how to best put it together, and you're you're dealing with all of these issues that we've talked about. And mm. um, you're, you know, as, as you go through it and you're studying it, you're having to weigh all those issues again. And maybe for some of them, particularly because it wasn't necessarily your work, um, you're coming across these particular perspectives, maybe not the first time, but maybe because it's not, you know, your work, this is being, this concept is being portrayed in a way that you haven't really thought about, a, you know, a whole lot. Um, was there anything that as you went through all this that you found yourself going, you know, I never really thought of that before and that your perspective actually changed through the writing of this book? Oh, I think I think there are several things. I mean, uh, the thing about writing a New Testament introduction is you really have to go through every single book of the New Testament. Uh, and, 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 and you have to do the sort of, you know, grinding stuff of, OK, what's the authorship? What's the date? That type of thing. Uh, but w one thing we do provide in this book as well is not just all the critical stuff. We provide like a miniature commentary on every book of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So it's it's also it's also kind of like a one volume commentary um, kind of wrapped inside. And for me, that, for this was the first time I, I got to really grapple with some uh, with some text. I think it was the first time of my life I, fe I felt like, OK, I think I might genuinely have a grip on the book of Hebrews now. Um, that kind of a thing. Uh, it was the first time I'd really had a close and detailed read through the Johannine letters, where I'm going through verse by verse, checking out some of Tom's stuff, but you know, a few other commentaries along the way, and thinking my own thoughts about this as well. And yeah, I, I learned I learned a, a lot of things. Uh, certainly, oh, I'm gonna give you a good example um, in the Johannine letters. I think there's some uh, wonderful themes about love and discipleship and how they, they go together. Uh, I remember reading also in 1 Thessalonians, um, I can't remember the precise verse, where I think it's in, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says, you know, make sure no one in your midst can be exploited or anything like that. And I, I was reading that verse uh, around the same, same time. There was a lot of, you know, um, 
reports in the media about clergy sexual abuse in churches and i think oh my gosh that is such a timely word Uh, we need to make sure these are not places where abuses can happen where abuse of this order can be covered up where abuse of 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 this um, magnitude and evil can ever be hushed up and without being uh, really dealt with in, in the full way that it needs to be uh, so there's, there's a number of you know moments like that. If you if you aha, I never thought about it that way. And simply working through the entire New Testament, you get all of these little little nuggets of insights, uh, which I'm glad to say I think we've been able to share with some of our readers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, last question for you, because I want to respect your time and respect my wife's time, who is uh, <laughs> dutifully keeping our kids quiet somewhere. I'm not entirely sure where. I don't hear them, so I guess that's good. Um, and because I, I feel like we, we could talk about the New Testament forever. And I mean, I guess we, oh, have, we have for 2000 years. So I don't I don't foresee it stopping and even in eternity. I don't think I think we're still mm. going to be talking about it even then. Uh, and I feel bad doing this to you when you've just published a 900 page book. But I always like to end by asking what's next. What are you going to do next? I know this has been like 10 years of your life. Um, so, but what what do you what you know what now that you've accomplished this and you can like Oh, okay, breathe that sigh of relief that it's done. Where where, where do you, Dr. Michael Bird, go from here? Uh, well, I've, I've got a number of little projects I've got bubbling away. Uh, I'm doing a second edition of Evangelical Theology, uh, along with a, a friend of mine, Nijay Gupta. We've got a commentary on Philippians coming out. Myself and a colleague, Scott Harrower, uh, editing the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers. And uh, maybe by the end of the year, I'm hoping to have a book out called Seven Things I Wish All Christians Knew About the Bible, uh, which will be which will be a fun book. I should say Tom's also quite busy as well. Uh, He's got a book also, I think, just out on um, history, eschatology and natural theology out with Baylor University Press. And I believe he's plugging away very diligently on a commentary on Galatians, which will probably be a treat to when it comes out. Um, Probably the only thing I just want to uh, uh, let your readers know that if they do pre-order the New Testament in its world, you know, from Amazon or CBD or wherever, uh, they can get some bonus materials. They can get a a few uh, video lectures for free and a little PDF as well, a little short book that we've put together for their benefit. All right. Well, thank you again for taking time out of your day to be on the program for dealing with uh, all the time differences because it's uh, it's Sunday night where I'm sitting at and it's Monday afternoon where you are and we we figured out the time differences between the two of us and, and made this work. So thank you for that. I really appreciate your time uh, and for your your words of wisdom, um, not only on this podcast but uh, you know in in your book, which I still have some parts of it that I need to finish reading through. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me, Joss. It's been a great pleasure.